And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are about to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as had not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Earth and heaven will pass away, 
but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I have a, a lot of you know this, I'm in a doctoral program, and I, my doctoral supervisor is this really smart, but very intense Scottish-Canadian academic. And uh, he has like kind of like, he's a, he's a very like kind human being, but when he's teaching, he's just like really intense personality, so much so that we were like in a doctoral class, and I, I'm pretty sure I saw a grown man cry a little bit in light of that class. Uh, but when we were first in his class, he, he told us a story. And it was a story about an anthropological study that was done sometime in the 80s or 70s. And while the anthropologists, was, they were living with this tribal community. And they were just studying life on the ground and, you know, what does normal life look like here? And what does it look like to be a part of this society and a part of this culture? And, you know, normal anthropological, ethnographic research purposes, just studying life on the ground. And while they were there, they got to witness this like, really strange ceremony. Maybe ceremony is not the right word, but some kind of strange event that was central to the life of young kids in this community. So one day at night, a group of men in the tribe kidnapped, planned, so it was a planned, approved, consensual kidnapping. <laughs> Let me work with those words for a second. But they, they take the kids who are about to enter into adulthood, and they lead them really deep into the forest, so deep into the forest at night that it is impossible to know exactly where the kids are. There's no way for them to get home. There's no way for them to navigate their route back because they were led at night in a disorienting circumstance deep into the forest, and then they are left there. And the task of these kids, apparently, is to survive this moment, to adapt to the challenges of this environment, to change accordingly for this moment in time, and that is somehow connected to their maturation, to their entering of adulthood. So when they're left there, the anthropologists go and they watch. And they realize that, like, everything in this forest circumstance is a disruption for these kids' lives. Norms and habits and like regular rules and regular moments of their life are totally disrupted by being led into the forest. Village life has dissolved. And with it, so have all the hierarchies of village life. Popular kids, they're not popular anymore in this space. Whatever was successful in village life, it is no longer successful in this moment. The rules are upended. The norms are upended. The hierarchies are upended. Life is different in the forest. Everything is disrupted. 
Anthropologists referred to this moment as liminality, or as liminal space, which is that sense of ambiguity or disorientation that occurs in the middle stage of something, between what was and what is and even what is to come. And the big question, if you're in liminality or if you're a kid kind of strapped in this situation, the big question is, well, what do you do in liminality? What moves do you make or what plans do you make? Because your normal life is so disrupted that it's hard to know what to do. And normally we plan and we make moves and we strategize based upon some kind of like predicated knowns. Right? So if I'm in a difficult situation, I, n- I normally know how to respond to that difficult situation because of normal events in the past because it resembles some kind of event that I've already experienced. Or I know generally what's going to happen in the future, and so I can plan accordingly based upon predicated assumptions or norms or consistencies. That's how I plan. That's how I make my moves. That's how I strategize. But liminality is a sense of disorientation where you do not know what is coming, and you're in a new space in the middle of it. Village life is not helpful here. For friend moves like Carla and Chris, traditional relational habits are not helpful. Something has changed. You lose your job, especially in a, like a limited or a disappearing field. You're in a liminal space. You don't know how your skills apply to a different circumstance. Even in some ways, Mythio as a community is in a liminal space. Kyle leaves in February. We don't actually know what the future brings. We're in a liminal space. What do we do in this moment when we don't actually know what the next moment will be. How do you live in in in-between spaces when you don't have predicated assumptions or norms or consistency or rules that govern that moment? What do you do when it feels disorienting and unknown? How do you navigate ambiguity and disorientation in the in-between? Well, this is fundamentally the question of Mark chapter 13. In the last few chapters of Mark, if you've been with us through our series in Mark, Jesus has been telling the disciples that they are entering into a liminal space, an in-between space, an unknown space. Multiple times he has predicted his own death, which is, you know, maybe the most crazy kind of liminality the disciples can possibly imagine. What will life look like when Jesus is not physically, bodily present to you? That's a liminal space. How do you be followers of Jesus when he's not there? Twice now, he's predicted the temple's destruction. How do you be a Jewish, like, religious human without the central component of your Jewish identity? That's a liminal space. Temple is how you worship God. It's where you offer sacrifices. It's how you know that you're in connection to God. It's where your unique identity as a person comes from. The threat of a destruction of the temple, that creates an unknown space. A disorienting space, a liminal space, a space of transition. So the disciples, like, they begin to hear Jesus talk about this in-between space, and so they ask Jesus, well, Jesus, like, if we're going to enter into this unknown liminal space, can you tell us when? When are all of these things going to happen? And so there's a first wave of answer to that question. Well, Jesus doesn't answer when. He just actually describes more liminality, more 
unknown. He talks about signs of the age, turmoil and war, more things that would feel transitional. He uses this really intense language in the ESV, abomination of desolation. It's like a D&D villain. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man. He talks about paying attention to the lessons of the fig tree as it grows and as it leaves. It's all these languages of something transitioning, of something changing. Yet he doesn't answer the question the disciples ask. And then he gets to the very end of Mark chapter 13, and he says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Which, if you're a disciple, must be one of the most frustrating kinds of answers. Jesus keeps describing this like crazy, unknown, transitional period that you're going to enter, something that is liminal, something that is confusing. He has ramped it up. He's like, there's going to be signs, there's going to be monsters, there's war, there's drought, there's these crazy events, these hard-to-explain phenomenon. You can pay attention to it, like watching the fig, and then the disciples are like, oh yeah, he's going to answer the question. He's like, yeah, but you don't know, actually. No one knows. Not the angels, not the Son of Man, and especially not you. No one knows. Which leads to a question, so why tell them all these things in the first place? Like, if you're not going to answer when, why tell the disciples about all of this transitional information? Why answer that question if you're not going to answer when? Well, I think the context of Mark is actually helpful for answering this. Because when Jesus is talking to his disciples about these events, the words probably feel abstract. Like, I really love this moment in verse 1, because the disciples, they've already heard that Jesus is going to predict the destruction of the temple, or that he's depicted the destruction of the temple. And then they see the temple again, and the disciples are like, teacher, look, what wonderful stones, and what a wonderful building. He's like, are you kidding me? But I love it because it feels like there's this innocence to it. Like, they don't feel the weight yet of Jesus' words. He's a good teacher. He is a rabbi. They trust him. They are following him. They believe him, and yet the weight of what he says has not hit them yet. And so they can hear about the destruction of the temple and then also enter into it and see, like, oh, wow, this is Disneyland. But that is actually not true of Mark's readers. Because Mark's readers live in a fundamentally different context. And Mark is not writing to the disciples. He is writing to a group of Christians. We actually get that clue in verse 14 when he says, let the reader understand these things. This isn't for the disciples. This is for the reader. This is for you. And in the reader's world, these words are not distant at all. There's a little debate about when Mark finished, but we know that it is right about at the destruction of the Jewish temple. So somewhere around A.D. 70, when Rome comes in and they destroy the temple. So it's right about that moment. So either pressure is really high, tensions are really high in that moment, or the temple has already been destroyed. So that promise does not feel distant or abstract. It feels relevant and true. Like this thing has happened. And then when Mark is, like the story that Mark is telling to the disciples, no kings are paying attention to the early disciples. In the moment where Mark's readers are, well, the Apostle Paul has already been led before governors, officials, 
and most likely was martyred at Caesar's direct decree in Rome. That's a different moment. And wars are not just rumors in the time of Mark's readers. The temple is destroyed because there is a revolt of Jewish zealots against Rome. So Palestine is actually in the midst of war. It's not just a rumor. It is literally happening right there and in that moment. So for the readers of Mark, these words are not distant or abstract. They are life right now. Jesus is ascended. The apostles are gone. The temple is destroyed. And Nero is aimed directly at them. He's blaming the fire in Rome on Christians. This is a space of ambiguity, of disorientation, and they are trying to navigate it. And Jesus' words are for these people, not the immediate disciples. And so what does Jesus say to them? He says in verse 37, And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Stay awake. For Jesus, the vital question of Mark chapter 13 is not when, It's not when do these things happen. It's not when does liminality end. It's not when does the transitions in our life come to a conclusion. It is more what do you do in the midst of transition? How do you respond to the midst of transition? Do you stay awake in the midst of transition or do you succumb to the pressures of transition? It is not a question of when, but a question of what. What do you do in the middle of this transition period? This is true consistently for Jesus. Like, if you think about his most famous teachings on waiting or anxiety or the future, which is, I think, Mark 6, verse 31, he says the same thing. He says this, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And later, James, the writer, will pick up the same kind of theme, but say it a little more tersely, saying, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Right, in all of these texts, the theme is consistent. There is this unknown and disorienting transition, and when you are in it, well, it is impossible to make plans for tomorrow. Making plans for tomorrow is based upon something that is known, that is predictable. Jesus says you do not know. You do not know what tomorrow brings. Therefore, you cannot plan for what happens tomorrow. So don't be anxious, but instead be awake to the moment now. Be awake to the thing that is happening around you now. You cannot plan for what comes next. You can only be awake to this moment. There's a theologian that I really appreciate who, he's writing mostly to communities of Christians who live in oppression, which is the book of Mark is written to a community of Christians in Rome who are a minority people who live under the thumb of Caesar. So similar kind of community. And he he says that when you're comfortable or when life is going the way that you want it to, you can make long-term plans. You can strategize is the language that he uses. Because you know something. 
He says, but in liminality or in transition or in oppression, he's like, that doesn't work. You can't plan out the future when things are difficult. All you can do is show up in each individual moment. That's the only option that exists for people who live under the thumb of someone or who are in the midst of transition is to show up in the middle of something awake, right here, right now, moment to moment. This is what the readers of Mark need. Their lives are going to be lived in liminality forever. So instead of a five-year plan, Jesus says, stay awake. Stay awake. Pay attention. Be on guard. He'll use different language like that. And then he'll add to it. He says, stay awake, pay attention. And then in Matthew 6, he says, seek first the kingdom. The writer in James says, do what is right. Or in Mark 13, he says, bear witness. So stay awake, bear witness. And then in Mark, he adds on to it this. He says, bear witness, because the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And so when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you will say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So he says, stay awake, pay attention, be present, and then show up and bear witness to the gospel. I was talking to Josh Rosenthal this week, and I, he put this in a way that I thought was just really pithy. He said it is not about outputs, but about inputs. Which I really like that language, because in this moment of transition, in liminality, in disorientation, we do not get to control what happens next. We don't get to control what happens after transition. And in this moment, in Mark, like the disciples and the followers of Jesus who are living in Rome, they have no control of the politics of Rome. They don't get to control how Caesar responds to them. They don't get to control when they get exiled or when they get dispersed into the world. They don't get to control any of those things. So Jesus says, stay awake and show up. Bear witness to the reality of the gospel in this moment. Show up. Trusting that God, through his Spirit, is at work in and through and around you despite the circumstances, despite how much control you have, despite what expectations you have. It's such a tricky thing because on one hand, it feels like Jesus is asking us to have no expectations of the outcomes. To be like, you have to bear witness to the gospel regardless of what happens on the other side of it. And then on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but you're also supposed to trust that God is working in the midst of you, through you and around you, because of you. So you're supposed to hold these two things together to say, like, I don't have expectations of the results of my inputs. I'm only going to show up. I'm only going to try to love my neighbor. I'm only going to try to proclaim the gospel regardless of receptivity. I'm going to try to be honest and have integrity at work regardless of how I am responded to. I'm going to try to absorb hostility from others and offer grace and forgiveness, even if they continue giving me hostility, regardless of what happens. Yeah, I'm supposed to trust that God is doing something with that. This weird tension that Jesus is like, you don't have expectations, and yet you trust. You don't have expectations of what happens because of your inputs, but you trust that God is doing something in the middle of it. So what you do is you show up. You stay awake and you show up and you bear witness to the gospel. You live the way of Jesus, which is what Jesus has been detailing throughout Mark. Right? It's literally a book for people who live 
in a weird transitional period to say, what does it look like to be followers of Jesus? And he's like, here's what it looks like. So bear witness to the gospel. Show up and practice the way of Jesus, trusting that God through his spirit is at work even when you don't know the expectation, when you don't control the expectation. The trusting that God is at work in you. See, not only is it hard because you have to hold that tension, but it is also hard because there are so many other options that advertise to us quick results in our world. I think this is actually what Jesus is naming in verse 14. When he says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So this, this language is really intense. And some other translations will use the phrase like desolating sacrilege, which is also really intense language. But Mark adds this phrase, let the readers understand, because he kind of understands that we today, or just outside of Jewish context, won't understand. Because what he's doing is he's pulling a Jewish reference, a deep Jewish reference that comes from the book of Daniel. And it comes from a historical moment in the history of the Jewish communities when the Greeks who had conquered Israel, after Persia, had a king who put up a statue and an altar to Zeus in the temple, which was referred to as an abomination of desolation. You have put up this false altar to a false god in Yahweh's temple. Like, that is unacceptable. That is an abomination of desolations. That is a sacrilege. So Mark and Jesus, they're using that language from this historic event and saying, when this happens in the future, when people put up altars to false gods in the temple, Now, that moment was such a big moment that it actually leads to the intertestamental revolt. So if you've ever heard of the Maccabees, part of the the cause of the Maccabean revolt is that a temple to Zeus is put up in the middle of the temple of Yahweh. So Jesus uses this. He says, if anybody ever does this, flee. And then he also adds on to it. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christ, and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead you astray. The ancient world that Jesus lived in was rife with deities and persons claiming to be the answer to the world's problems. So you had Rome and Caesar who had their own deities. Even Caesar claimed to be a god that answered the deepest, most existential questions of the world. But there was also other people around the same time as Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. People were putting up altars to false gods in the temple. And Jesus says, when you see these things, when there's false gods who are offering you false solutions, flee. Because the trick is that false messiahs are tempting because they offer quick solutions. Quick fixes to the problem of our world, exits from liminality. But Jesus' response to that is that it is always a lie. Quick fixes are always a lie because you cannot rush transition. Jesus compares the transition that the world is in to birth pains in pregnancy. Verse 8, these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. 
He's like, our lives are in transition. Our world is in transition. We believe that Jesus has begun something, and yet we are waiting for the culmination of that thing. So we are in transition, and it is like pregnancy, and you cannot rush pregnancy. So he's like, so if anybody claims to be able to do that, if anybody claims to be a solution to the liminality, to the disorientation, to the ambiguity of your world, it is a lie because you cannot rush transition. Right? Instead, the task for followers of Jesus is to trust that God is doing something. It is to live presently in the moment, in the here and now, awake, on guard, paying attention, not knowing when something is going to be resolved, but hoping in the finished work of Jesus. This is the hope that Jesus gives us in Mark 13, saying, But in those days, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds in great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. There's no answer to the question of when. There's no quick solution. There's no quick fix. But there is a picture of hope hope in what it is that Jesus is accomplishing. And the task for us is to live in the middle of that tension. Not knowing when, but hoping in what is to come. Like birth pains, or child raising, or even gardening. All metaphors that Jesus loves to use. The task is for followers of Jesus to be deeply rooted in the soil of this moment while eyeing what is to come. It is to be deeply rooted in the work of this present circumstance and situation, like cultivating and caring for a garden that is full of weeds. And it's like my yard. I live in Rose Park. It is just a monster zone. There's there's literally moles that I think might be popping up into my house all of a sudden. Homeownership is so much fun. Right, but you, you work on it deeply immersed in the present. You can't have expectations for what comes out of that. I can't. I can't have expectations for what happens to my home. I can't have expectations for what my efforts and my labor do. So I am deeply immersed in the present, showing up awake, believing that this moment matters because God has called me to it, yet eyeing with hope what is to come. That's what we do when we garden. That's what we do in pregnancy. That's what we do when we're raising children. That's what we do in marriage. You can have expectations for your spouse of what, what should happen, trying to control what God does in them, but you have expectations for what, or you have hope for what it looks like as you grow together in light of the gospel. Not manufactured control, but hope and trust in what God is doing as you are present in the moment. So the job of Christians is to be deeply rooted in the soil of right now, but aimed at the hope of what is to come. That's where we do our best work. And the transition in the middle of it may be hard and difficult. It may be full of lots of weeds and birth pains and hardships and sadness. But we know, hoping in what is to come, that something good and beautiful is being made from it all. 
Something good and right is being made from it all. There's this, uh, this uh, French term, uh, bricolage, which is often used in art to describe making something. Something like you use it, or this, is, this phrase describes making something from what you have. So sometimes collage art is referred to as bricolage, or more importantly, art that comes out of war-torn areas is often referred to as bricolage. Because you have limited resources. You don't know what tomorrow brings. So you try to make something good right here and right now without the expectations of what comes next. I love that as a description of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. That we have this hope in what is to come. But we can't control it. We can't make expectations of it. So we're just present in the moment, showing up with the reality of the gospel. Believing that we can make something beautiful in each moment. That we can bear witness to the kingdom in each moment. And that stands as an alternative because often I think what we do is we hear about Jesus' moments in Mark 13. These like promises of the end of all things. And they either lean towards, like, we ignore them because they're weird, or we lean too far into them as some kind of escapism. But Jesus never paints a picture of what's happening in order for us to escape. It is always so that we can participate right here, right now, more meaningfully. So we can make something of the moment around us, bear witness to the gospel in this moment. There's a, one, of the, one of the best examples I've heard of this work, is gonna, this is going to sound so weird, so you have to bear witness with me, but this week I was reading an article from the New York Times about an economist who went to Burning Man. And I was like, wow, surprisingly, what a great example of following Jesus. I don't know much about Burning Man. I'm not actually a big fan of Burning Man. I don't know if you know this, but half of our building was lit on fire by a burner and his float preparing for Burning Man. So like, I have some residual Burning Man PTSD. (laughs) But this economist was going to Burning Man because for a long time, he's been trying to study how do you, in transitional periods, when you don't know what is to come, prepare and deal with all the circumstances around you. And specifically, his focus has been like, hey, the world's population is booming and none of our cities are ready for it. That's his study. And he's like, so how do we, as the world's population is growing rapidly, move our cities in a way that is adaptable to the growing population? He's like, you know who does this every year? Burning Man. He's like, 70,000 people show up in the middle of the desert, and they build a city from what they have, and then they tear it down, and there's like no evidence of it. He's like, what's a better example of making something from the things that you have around you than Burning Man? In this place, this is such a crazy photo. In this place, like, they don't lay concrete. They don't bring steel beams. Like, they don't do any of the normal kinds of construction in order to build this city. It's bricolage. It's making a city out of what you have, adapting to the moments around you. This is what followers of Jesus are called to do. In Jeremiah, he says, like, you're exiles in a foreign land, so make a home there. Peter loves to use the language of exiles. Like, we're sent somewhere distant. We're, in, we're put somewhere in a desert, in a transitional 
liminal kind of period, we can't expect it to be normal. We can't expect it to have regular rules. We can't expect it to have regular tools of the trade. Rarely are the situations that Christians find themselves in ideal for being followers of Jesus. Rarely are the answers simple or straightforward. But what we do have is a community, a call to bear witness to the gospel right now, and a hope that we get to look towards. And those are the tools that we need in order to make something beautiful, to live in liminality, like kids in the forest or burners in the desert. We are called to be present, to make a home here, to witness to the gospel here. And the good news is that we worship a God who does the same thing, who has a long habit of making homes in liminal, unexpected, disorienting places, of speaking life into wildernesses, of joining us in deserts, and of taking on flesh and entering into a world that rejects him. That's his habit, and he's calling followers of Jesus to have the same. This is what it means to be the people of Jesus, to be exiles or strangers who live in transition and bear witness to the gospel. And so as we close, I just want to ask you two questions about this. First, both of these are big questions. So write them down. Be prepared to work through them. But the first one is, can you name in your own life where your liminality is? Maybe you're experiencing in your own life, we were talking about this as house church on Tuesday, and it felt like almost everybody in our house church named that they were in some kind of transition. So where is that? Where is it in your own life? But maybe where is it in your city or your neighborhood or the world around you? Where is it even here at Missio? Where is the transition? Where is the liminality? And then here is the even bigger question. How then should you live in it? How, how do you stay awake in this moment? How do you be present in the transition? Not leaving, not trying to escape, not trying to assimilate, not trying to give in to it. How do you be present in the moment and bear witness to the gospel here? What does it mean to abide in love here? Now, like I said, these are not easy questions to answer, and I think the only way to answer the second one is to discern it with your community. To take this question to your house church or to your closest like Christian friends and to be, ask them that question. How do I live right now in this moment? To do that, write down, write down these questions, your guesses to the answers. Take them to your community and begin to discern them through. And then here and now would you come to the table? Because this is the moment we actually practice This is a practice where we break bread, we dip it in the juice, we are fully present. This is about this moment, and yet it is eyeing that we believe that God has laid a feast that we are welcomed at in his kingdom. So we are doing that moment where we're here while being present to something else. And communion is such a moment of bricolage, of making something, of bearing witness to the gospel with what we have. Simple bread, juice, and the followers of Jesus around us.
So, Missio, as you discern that question, come to the table. Taste and see right now the present work of Jesus so you can trust it and hope in it for what is to come. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that more than anything else today, you are one who has a habit of entering into wildernesses, deserts, unexpected, disorienting, ambiguous, liminal spaces, and making something amazing there. Taking on flesh, building your community, forgiving sins. These are all happening in liminal spaces. Calling us to be your people, sending us out. So Jesus, as we reflect on that reality, as we hear the good news of you coming towards us, entering into our unknown spaces, would that form us into a similar kind of people who live in the tension of what was and what is to be, bearing witness to the reality of you. God, give us a willingness to wrestle with that in our community and the creativity that flows out of trusting your spirit. And move us, lead us. In your name we pray. Amen.